Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the hymn, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming to carry me home, a band of angels coming for me, coming to carry me home. If you get there before I do, tell all of my friends I'm coming too. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. I'm sometimes up and I'm sometimes down, but still my soul feels heavenly bound. Coming for and to carry me home, the brightest day that I can say, when Jesus washed my sins away. Swing low, sweet chariot. You're coming to carry me home. If I get there before you do, I'll cut a hole and pull you through, coming to carry me home. Today we're discussing final words, as also known as the words at the threshold. So when Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, she gathered her family around and they sang together, and her last words actually were, swing low, sweet chariot. Some words are planned, and some are cognizant, and some are very fractured ramblings. So who is it in this world who takes note and writes this stuff down? Well, we're talking to one today. Her name is Lisa Smart, and as her father became terminally ill with cancer, she began recording his conversations, and she noticed that his personality showed some very curious changes. She always knew him as being skeptical and had a really secular view, but all of a sudden, he was developing a deeply spiritual outlook in those final days, and that change was really reflected in his language. Now, Lisa, of course, came from a background of linguistics training, and she also majored in linguistics at UC Berkeley, so this provoked her to track his final words. Lisa is the author of Words at the Threshold, a book dedicated to the final words and wording of death and dying. So Lisa, if you would, if you'd give us some background context here, what would you say is the definition of linguistics, and how does this scientific study relate to us humans? Uh, as you mentioned, linguistics is the scientific study of language. So it's taking the structure of language, languages from around the world, and looking how they are put together, the, the, the syntax, the phonology, which is the sound. And what linguists do is we learn new languages. We, we look at the process of how languages are put together and how people learn them. And also another part of linguistics, which was what interests me the most, is psycholinguistics. How do we acquire language? How do we process language? How do we use language to um, define ourselves and our relationships with others? So when you were sitting with your father and you noticed words, how long did it take you till you thought to yourself, I should grab a pen, I should grab a pad, I should mark all this stuff down? Was this sort of right away, or did you think to yourself, huh, this is really interesting, I should make note? It was right away. I, I think part of being a linguist is that one of my coping mechanisms in life is if something baffles me or upsets me or confuses me in any way, 
I will just pick up a pen and pencil and writing things down. I, I think it is sort of a coping mechanism. So the night that my father first showed signs of being seriously ill, he um, that night he walked out the front door of my mother's house at midnight in his underwear mm-hmm. on a January night and walked down a major avenue um, in Berkeley, California, where he was from, and started talking about a big event, a big art show, and he was carrying the boxes to the big art show. And, of course, um, he had never done anything like that. He was a psychologist. He was a very sane person, and this seemed like frightening and even maybe crazy behavior to me, and it, it, it confused me. And the first thing I did is write in my journal, my dad said these strange words, what's going on with Papa? And that's how it all began. And I came to find out um, sometime later that oftentimes before people die, they make some kind of announcement of some kind of big occurrence, like in my father's case, the art show. And my mother was an artist, and throughout their lives, she carried boxes to many art shows. Um, so I'm glad I wrote those words down because months later I came to understand more about why she made that big announcement. So with your dad, when you first heard about these things and he was seeing visions of angels and different things and talking about another dimension, I imagine, so he wasn't a Star Trek or a Red Dwarf kind of guy. This is more of a serious <laughs> guy. Oh, my goodness. My father was so not that way. He... Um, he was a psychologist, and I would call him, you know, almost a man of science. He was very rational. He had a, um, you know, he loved art and poetry and so forth, but he did not believe in anything connected with the concept of, of heaven or a world beyond this one. Certainly didn't believe in angels. Um, he was a pretty gritty, down-to-earth, rationally, scientifically oriented person, and uh, he believed that that time that science and, you know, and maybe religious or spiritual belief were in opposition to each other. But, you know, it's not necessarily true that if you are a scientific person that that has to be in opposition to a religious or spiritual perspective. But my father was one of those people who did believe that and did believe that if you were truly a rational person, there was no room in your life for angels. So that's why it surprised me when I heard him start talking indeed about angels. I imagine a first reaction would be, okay, this is some sort of medicine, psychosis, or maybe someone hijacked dad, or not that he's even cognizant enough to play tricks on you, but wasn't there any sort of motion of, I don't think this is my father anymore, or maybe somebody else has come in and taken over the personality or the being or something? There was most certainly that kind of feeling. And of course, the question about the medications, because he had just recently, well, part of what why he was so ill is he um, had a very bad infection related to some of the treatment he was receiving for his cancer, um, and he they over-radiated him. So then he had this very bad infection. So it seemed to me that possibly it was related to the infection or the new medication. And what I've come to find over the years is that, you know, there's no doubt that medications affect the mind and so forth. But what's interesting is when you start seeing the same patterns of language and behavior even and perception that cut across the different medications or the different types of illnesses, 
um, then that becomes interesting to me in terms of universals because once you start seeing that things occur no matter the medications um, or the illnesses, then you begin to think, hmm, something here might be going on that's not just a result of, of the medication or the other things that are going on related to the illness. You have collected hundreds of final words, and you've analyzed the linguistic patterns of all of these and the themes. And what I find, too, from reading books, and obviously you're well more versed in this than I am, but all of these accounts and transcripts, I find that there's this um, the sense of unity and a sense mm-hmm. of kind of this, the themes you've talked about in your book. There's gratitude, there's reassurance, there's that idea of I know, don't worry about me. And there's a lot of positivity to it. So for me personally, hearing words from somebody who maybe was skeptical of life being on the other side, and then finding out that at that very, very moment where the foot is really in both worlds, that's not mm-hmm. surprising to me at all. And that actually brings me a lot of comfort. So did you feel that as well, that your dad was fitting into the next place he was going and really at peace? I certainly did. And that was maybe one of the biggest surprises to me in the whole uh, process with my father. And then, of course, in the last six years that I've continued to do this research, I'm really in awe of and surprised by every time I read a transcript in terms of the, the experiences that people are having as they're dying. And, you know, it's not all it's not all easy or beautiful or transcendental, but so many times the things that we hear when we listen closely to people's final words are really reassuring. And so with my father, I mean, as I said, he was a skeptic. And he was also someone who was really afraid of dying. And I think often those two can go together, that if you don't have some kind of uh, religious or spiritual foundation, it's, it's easier to be afraid, right? Because you mm-hmm. think there's nothing after. And so that was the case with my father. So what really stunned me in those three weeks, and it was only three weeks process in which he died, is how there seemed to be this process of him coming to greater and greater terms with what was happening, and then almost entering a dream-like state. And when he started talking to me about angels in the room, I was absolutely stunned. I, I couldn't believe it. This is a man who would never speak of angels. And then three days before he died, he announced, enough, enough. The angels say enough. Only three days left. And indeed, three days later, he had passed on. And that kind of premonition and announcement from him was extremely reassuring that he may indeed have been seeing angels. That's beautiful. I love that. So now this led you into creating the Final Words Project. Is that correct? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. My my father lived down the street from where I went to college, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, at UC Berkeley, they have a great linguistics department. And, of course, I was a grieving daughter, um, very sad to, to see my father go. And yet I also was so entrained in linguistics, and my work was actually very related to my, to my training. So I thought for the heck of it, I would just go up the street and go to the library at, in the linguistics department um, to see what had been other linguists experiences or academic writing about people's final words, because I imagine that there had been plenty of research about it. Um, You know, we know that there's lots of research about language acquisition, about 
the language of children and infants and how we learn to speak. So I expected I would find, you know, plenty of research about what happens as we die and what happens to language in those in those last days and weeks and hours. But I was shocked to find that there was really nothing or there was very little written about the linguistics of end of life. And I knew at that moment um, I had to find out as much as I could about this great mystery. Yeah, I'm totally fascinated by this because you hear stories of people such as Elvis Presley. He had final words. He died in 1977, and before a night of sleeplessness, he just said to his girlfriend, I'm going to the bathroom to read. And sure enough, he died in the bathroom, and he was apparently on the commode and was reading a magazine or something. Now, that's really cut dry. That's really clear. She heard that word for word. She heard a full sentence out of his mouth, not belaboring breath, just said it. But I find here you have over 1,500 English utterances, and you say some are single words, some are complete sentences. How did you gather this? How did you record this? You know, when I first, linguists, when we're first trained, you know, we're taught to always have our digital recorder or, you know, now I guess people would use phones, but I still use those digital recorders. I'm kind of old school, right? <laughs> and, you know, the, the old idea was you have a recorder and you would record the language that you want to analyze. However, I came quickly. I came upon the very complicated ethical issues related to doing that. Because imagine, for example, someone wanting in those final days to confess something to a loved one or to apologize about something very intimate. You know, it didn't feel right to me to have a digital recorder in such a sacred and private time. And of course, for me to be able to do that, most hospices and hostels would not have permitted that without the correct um, uh, board, and, you know, review board in place and so forth. So, um, as a matter of fact, I have one really funny story I want to share about that, is that when my grandmother was dying before, before I even began this final words research, um, she called me into her, into her room as she was dying, and she said, uh, Lisa, um, don't tell anybody. But you've always been my favorite. Awesome. You've always been my favorite. You know, we we have so much together. We're both a little chubby. We both like chocolate. We both love language. We both have curly hair. And, you know, it's just all throughout life, you've always been my favorite. You know, and I, I just, oh, I said, oh, Grandma, thank you. know, I feel so honored. And, you know, that was really a meaningful moment to me. And, um, well, months later, I was walking with a couple of my cousins. <laughs> and I came to found, find out. But she told everybody the same thing. <laughs> maybe not being chubby and maybe not liking chocolate, oh. but that she told every one of them for very different reasons that they were her favorite. How and special. Happened, yeah, special. You know, part of what she really was saying is each one of you is special, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I had a digital recorder near her, she may have felt she could not have said that. You know, she may have felt she had to hold her words back if she knew that recorder was there. So it became very, and, and I'm just so grateful that she got to tell every single one of us that, that we were her favorite, right? Because that's, that's a wonderful experience you get to have with each of us. And I, I never felt it was a lie or anything. You know, I, I was so grateful that she had that moment. So I just, when I thought about the final words, I, I realized that I didn't want to take anybody's moments away from them. I, I just felt that was completely 
just not right. So I realized that I had to get the data um, in a different way. And the thing that seemed most organic and most, I asked myself, what would be the most healing way to gather this data? And, I, and I, so I invited families to write down the final words of their loved ones because for me it was such a healing process. And so I invited others to do the same. So that was the primary way that I, I got the information. And then I put up a website. And then people just began, as they heard about the project, to just submit um, transcripts. And, you know, I would ask some questions just to make sure it was the truth. You know, I, I did, did some vetting of it. But um, so, you know, admittedly, some of this research is skewed because people usually are going to share the things that were uplifting and positive and, and happy. Um, so I'm sure there are plenty of more difficult conversations going on that, that we, we don't have as part of a database. And that's something I hope we can move, you know, we can collect more and more data in the, in the years ahead that might be more holistic. But I still think much of the data we have is, is the real deal and that the findings we have are, are meaningful and reflective of what's really going on in those last weeks and, and days. I'm speaking with Lisa Smart. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say When We're Nearing Death. What would you say is the most fascinating things you discovered through this research? Um, I think there are two. Um, one is that people, um, if you trust what people say, it's, it's not uncommon, it's, or it's common, that people will tell these old stories, but a little bit will come out every day. So someone may say, ah, oh, the, the, the railroad track is broken. And you think, oh, my God, Dad's crazy. What is he talking about? Oh, I don't know. It's with medication. But then the next day, you'll hear him say, oh, yeah, they're fixing the track now. Hmm. Again, in isolation, they're like, what the heck is, is Grandma talking about? Right? And then if you keep track of what someone says over, you know, a period of time, you see there's actually a story or a narrative unfolding. So with the, with the, the example that I just mentioned of the train tracks, tracks are broken, but then somebody comes and fixes them. And then over a period of about three weeks, suddenly the train is coming into the station and they're getting everything ready for the big trip. So um, to me, and I call those sustained narratives, I find it remarkable that over a period of time, these stories are being recounted to us as someone is dying because, first of all, you know what, Elizabeth, I couldn't tell you for the life of me what I said last night to somebody. I couldn't, I really, I could, well, I could, let's say two nights ago, I couldn't tell you. So what's amazing to me is that someone, as they're dying, has this story going on that if you listen closely and if you write, there's these threads that are occurring. And you know, some are clearer than others, but it's remarkable. So I call those sustained narratives, that there are these storylines that, are taking place kind of like in a dream state and that you can track them over days and um, sometimes as many as, as a few weeks. So that's one thing I find remarkable. And the other thing is there's something called terminal lucidity. And somebody can be completely, they could be in a coma, um, you know, completely be unresponsive. And then 
a few hours, a few days before they die, there'll be this period where they're suddenly very lucid. And that's the time where people think, oh, my God, Grandma's going to recover. Mm. My God, it's a miracle. But what happens is um, there are some theories about why it might be true, but there is just a period of lucidity. I have one person whose mother had Alzheimer's for years and then was in a coma. And during that period of lucidity, she got up out of the coma, looked at her son, and told him where all the financial records were kept in her study, which is an incredible amount of lucidity, right? Yeah. Or people will come out of a coma and might say something like, um, it's not what you think, or tell everybody that I love them. Or they may just not be in a coma, but they may suddenly have, like my father, a few days before he passed, people often ask for their favorite food. Like maybe for weeks or days they haven't been eating, which is very typical in the dying process. But they may have this small window of time, like my dad wanted me to make him pot roast an upside-down, a pineapple upside-down cake. Yum. He loved it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and those are my favorite things to cook. For. I used to love to cook for my dad. So, um, so that terminal lucidity is just remarkable, and there's actually finally some formal research being done by um, another researcher about it. But the, the thing to me that's so fascinating about it is when I look at all the transcripts of what people say during that heightened lucidity, it always has to do with love and forgiveness or giving advice. It's never, no one ever says like, God, I hated your father. He was such a creep. You know, <laughs> no one ever says mean spirited. It's like in that, in that period, it's a time where people will come and become lucid. And if they've never said they love the person, they, the beloved will say how much they loved their you know, daughter, son, or wife. <clears throat> One example was this person who was um, a father-in-law who was kind of, you know, people who are, um, they joke, but they're kind of mean. You know, they, they, they say mean things, but teasing. Sure. Well, this father-in-law um, used to make fun of this woman who, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't pretty in your traditional idea of being pretty, you know, tall, skinny, with, I don't know, blonde hair or whatever. You know, she, she was just an ordinary folk like most of us. But the other uh, sister-in-law was gorgeous in traditional terms, you know, just stunning. And the father-in-law used to say mean things about the one who was not as traditionally pretty, you know, who was just more kind of a plain Jane. And, um, and he was not nice about it. You know, he'd always talk about her weight and things like that. And... During this period of lucidity, he looked at her and said, Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I never noticed how beautiful you are. So in those moments before, and he was asked for a beer that same day to ask for a beer. So in those moments when people are in terminal lucidity, lucidity it's... Um, that particular daughter-in-law described it to me. It says, if he saw her through the eyes of God. And oftentimes it seems to be that that, that seems to be the case um, right before people die when they have those moments of, of this remarkable, also called sometimes the sunset day, that this period of lucidity um, where before they may have been relatively unresponsive and then soon later they pass on. 
I love all of the stories of synchronicity in your book about how people like, for instance, the number 18, and I won't give too much away, but how that was such a big part of somebody and how things kept coming up. And that's a neat thing. I also like how your book really does talk about the positivity of it. And something I've heard people say who I'm a mortician by trade and people who have passed away and they come into the funeral home later on to make plans or talk. And then the conversation comes up that they were on the emergency table and they died for a couple minutes and came back. They'll always say the music was just so beautiful and the colors were just so beautiful. And it was neat to hear that also in your book, too, from your process of people saying things like, oh, the music, you would never, (laughs) it's so beautiful. So I love that you have so much, again, the reassurance and the comfort and the positivity of these words. Yeah. And, you know, when I began this research, I was someone who was very afraid of dying um, I, I, I guess partly because my father was also, and I, and I was, I didn't really believe much either myself in the beginning in something beyond this world. And just in doing this research in the last six years, I have myself deepened in my own spirituality because when you hear over and over again people talking about the music that they're hearing, they're reassuring their loved ones about how beautiful it is over there. Or, you know, even when we hear Steve Jobs, you know, um, about the computer, when he died, he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Um, apparently, Bach was reported as saying, Johann Sebastian Bach, the composer, said, don't cry for me, for I go where the music is born. Mm. I, I love that quote. So, um, in I was someone who was so afraid of dying, and I have to say that um, one of the kind of remarkable things for me about doing this work is my own sense of reassurance and comfort has really deepened. Now, of course, none of us want to leave anybody that we love, and grief is grief, um, and none of us wants to die. But but there really, for me, I've come to to really feel that there is definitely something beyond the threshold. And as I have witnessed the language and the experiences of people who are dying, it's it's almost as if we're made or given at least this opportunity to really have forgiveness and a deep deep sense of um, peace in in those last days and weeks. And it does seem like something... There's a kind of grace in those last last days and weeks, especially if we can keep our ears and hearts open, we can really hear it from those we love. I want to make sure people can find you. So we have the Final Words Project is finalwordsproject.org. Do you have any other websites people can take a look at? Um, the finalwordsproject.org is probably the best. Um, the University of Heaven. Um, might be of interest to some of your listeners. And uh, but I think the Final Words Project, in terms of the final words, is probably the best resource. And I want to um, invite people who may have stories that they want to share, or final words, even if they seem uh, difficult or not easy or confusing or nonsensical, Those are the ones we also want to take a look at. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. 
I want to thank my guest, Lisa Smart, which is S-M-A-R-T-T. She's the author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other. Uh